This is the Silver City Church Podcast. Our prayer is you are edified by this content and that it refines your life in Christ. Visit us at silvercityky.com. From there, you can connect with us on social media, view our location and service time, and download our mobile app to stay all the more connected with us. If this content has been beneficial to you, please share it and give this show a high rating so more may hear the gospel of Christ. May you see God's will be done and kingdom come in your life. We have many guests with us this morning, so I just want to recap. We are finishing our exposition of the book of 1 John, a little letter in the back of the New Testament that is all about giving you assurance or showing you that you are not a Christian, either assurance that you are or not, and therefore leading you in the paths of life. It's a great short book of self-examination, and so we are in our last two weeks of it. If you have never read it, please read it. Today is a wonderful book of the Bible. But as we come to this, uh, the, the, the first to last sermon concerning 1 John, one of the most beloved film franchises of all time, based off a mythological world by an author that you should know, is Lord of the Rings. How many of you all enjoy Lord of the Rings? I know, I, okay. Some of you aren't raising your hands, and we need to talk after service as to why that's not the case. See, that, that franchise, Lord of the Rings, is personally one of my favorites, and it's, it's also one of the favorites of my children. And when it comes to the art of film, the Lord of the Ring films of the early 2000s, they're, they're generally some of the best book-to-film adaptations, even though I'm still extremely salty at, at Peter Jackson because he left out one of the most important characters of the entire thing, Tom Bombadil, okay? Tom Bombadil, if you've read Fellowship, read them. They're better than the movies. He left out Tom Bombadil. Nevertheless, in the concluding movie or book, The Return of the, the, Return of the King, there's this clumsy final five to ten minutes where the director, Peter Jackson, is trying to tie up all these loose ends and narratives that kind of all come together in an interwoven way. Uh, my, my friend Michael Foster, the pastor of our mother church, we were talking about the movie one time, and he, he quipped kind of funnily, funnily, that's not a word, in a funny way. He said, The Return of the King, it ends like five times. If you've ever seen the movie, it really does end like five different times. The director gives an ending to this part of the story, and the screen fades to black, and you're like, okay, get up to leave. And, but then there's another section, and then that one ends with a fade to black, and you're like, okay, we're fine. And about five different times, you have, it's almost like you have anxiety that you, is the movie over yet, or are they about to do something else? And so the Lord of the Rings ends this way with, with kind of shoring everything up with all these little fade to black scenes that seem to not make sense. When you have that much info in such a story that, that, that's that large, that have been over you know, nine hours worth of movies, hey, that's about the only way that you can sum things up is just tie it all up. So before us today in our text is John's handful of conclusions that seem to be clumsy, honestly, but when we step back and see what he's doing, they in all actuality are not. He's recapping tying everything together, making sure we understand it all before giving us the final word. Would you please turn in your Bibles, if you're willing and able, to 1 John chapter 5. We will be in verses 13 through 20 today. 1 John chapter 5, 
13 through 20. God's word says this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Thus says the living word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Would it be what you say it is, alive and active, dividing us to the very core? Would it be an implanted word that brings fruit of life in our life. Would you be with us in this time? Would you be glorified as we go to your word to hear you speak? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we come to the final two weeks of our exposition of 1 John, we need to be reminded of the purpose and some of the major content that's scattered throughout the letter. It's like the end of the return of the king, really it is, where there's so much recollection on the Shire and how Frodo and his companions got to where they are and and all that stuff, of which I won't spoil for you if you haven't seen it. But in uh, chapter 5, verse 13, we have this overarching thesis statement for the letter, although there have been others. There have been various thesis statements throughout the letter of, I write these things to you because, and I am writing to you because of this, but... The main intent of 1 John was this, to assure Christians of their standing, their fellowship with God amid a barrage of attacks from false teachers, false teachers who were at one time a part of the visible church, but proved they were never truly in the fold, but wolves in sheep's clothing. These these false teachers were attempting to lead the true people of God astray by claiming that they had the real truth. They had the real knowledge, the true knowledge, which honestly contained contradictory ideas, contradictory ideas that John has kind of fleshed out for us throughout the letter. Jesus isn't the son of God, but Jesus is the son of God, but not how you think. Also, there's no sin, but there is sin and it's not a big deal. Ideas such as you don't have to love God as long as you love other people, and you don't have to love other people as long as you love God, or you don't have to love at all. John has consistently and lovingly fortified the faith of believers who were, at this point in time, at every twist and turn, finding themselves in doubt. John gives various statements of assurance throughout the letter. We know emphatic statements of introspection. Uh, By this we know, or if you know this, then you can be sure, type statements. 
point blank, 1 John is not an apologetic or evangelical tract for an unbeliever to convince them or to tell them about the gospel, even though it does tell about the gospel. 1 John is for the Christian who needs to be reassured of their blessed hope. And if we are honest, that needs to be every single one of us every single day. Given that the world attacks our faith in futility since it has overcome the world, every angle at every step it seems. 1 John is a steroid shot in the arm for this life and the life to come, for the two cannot be separated. 1 John is truly a letter of assurance and Christian joy. That's what we have before us. And thus in our text today, John kind of recaps and recapitulates much of this in some generalized statements and examples all towards this question of self-examination, one of the last ones that we have kind of behind the text. Are you confident in your faith? Are you confident in your faith? Remember, our faith is not our own, but a gift of God. Our faith is not our own because it is not based within us, but it is from outside looking to the outside. Our faith, our blessed hope, what compels us to live and have purpose in this life is an eternal hope, the person and work of Jesus Christ and the reconciling fellowship that he gives us with God. That is our faith. That is what has overcome the world, as John talked about at the beginning of this chapter. We must know this, and we do. And we do. Now, a refresh of what we also know. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Verse 13. Did you catch that last part? That you may know. Not that you could, you might, maybe want, that you may know. Emphatic, yes, you know this. How many of you asked this question to drive the point home? Have ever asked a question of inquiry to a friend like this? Uh, is, is that new restaurant on the other side of town any good? And they respond, yeah, it's great. And you, like a four-year-old, say, how do you know? Right? To which you, with patience, reply, because I ate there last night, and I also know the owner. We are naturally curious creatures, for better and usually for worse. We like to have confidence in our decisions, don't we? That's why you, dear listener, will spend 15 to 25 hours split across two days reading reviews and researching things like for a dog bed. What's the best dog bed? Oh, these reviews. This one has a weird fiber. I don't think, oh, my dog's probably allergic. And you just, you spend an, a, works, a work week full of just research on a dog bed. And you know who you are. John doesn't let us ask that follow-up question of, well, how do you know? He just straight tells us time and again in this letter, this is what you believe. I know you lack confidence. I know things are difficult. Here's the truth, and you believe that. And so you can know with confidence, with boldness, without a doubt, with assurance that you have eternal life, that you are a true Christian, that you are in fellowship with God. John's aim is at confidence, not pride. 
but confidence in the message that he has propagated, that he has given us from the beginning of this letter, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Yet, after this verse, John doesn't say, if you've forgotten, go back and reread everything again, which we should. We should reread 1 John over and over. Rather, John gives us some short summary recaps with examples to solidify the big ideas of the letter. The multiple endings of Return of the King right here. 5, 14 through 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we ask of him. There's that buzzword right there in the text, confidence, peresia in the Greek. We have, we've heard it three times before already in chapter 2, verse 28, and in verse 4:17, talking about because of God's love for us seen through the person and work of his son, Jesus. Uh, it, it's replicated by his people in the power of the Holy Spirit in loving God and loving others by obeying the word of God. All of that gives us confidence that when Christ comes again, we don't shrink back at his coming. And in, in chapter 3, verse 21, when our heart condemns us because of our faults, God knows our true intentions, though marred by sin, thus we can stand before him in confidence. Confidence, 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 boldness, assurance, joy. Notice John, again, is being emphatic. This is the confidence. This is it. Not part, not a little bit, sort of. Not like it could mold and shape and evolve like a Pokemon into confidence. It is. This is your confidence. And what is that? That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Since God has reconciled us into fellowship with himself through Christ by the power of the Spirit. We stand before him, not as orphans, but as his children. And if his children, we have communication with him. And if his children who listen to their father's voice, his word, be assured that whatever we ask, we will receive. That we pray that what we pray will come to pass. Jesus himself taught this very principle to John, who recounts it in this teaching of confident prayer. And John's already told us what Jesus said in John, uh, his gospel, through uh, chapters 14 through 16. But hear what Jesus says in John, the gospel of John 15, 16. These are the words of Christ. John heard him say this. You did not choose me. Faith is not something we mustered up. It's outside of ourselves but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, there's John's favorite word, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he might give to you. What does it say? That he may give it to you. He will. We are able to confidently pray and be in communicant fellowship with God because of Jesus. For if we are his, and he is the son of God, and he is, then we are his brothers, we are children of God, and so we are. But notice in the text this morning, this is not a, a bratty, 
asking and getting whatever you want. Like, you're going to give it to me. I'm your child. You better, right? John has already spoken of, of confident prayer back in 1 John 3, 22. Hear again what he says, because it, it kind of goes together here. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. Usually the charismatic prosperity gospel stops right there. But there's a little bit more because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. We receive whatever we ask because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Because the prayers of petition, of, of provision, of supplication are not gumball prayers, they're not. We're, we're just because we're the child of God or a child of God, we go, you give me that because I'm your child and you got to do what I say. No, no, we've got things flipped. God is not manipulated with some sort of magic formula prayer as if to pray in Jesus' name makes him do anything. As if God's this, this magic eight ball, like, all right, yes, you did. You got to do what I say. I said Jesus' name. No, God's mind changes a lot. Malachi 3.6, prayer, communication with the Lord. It's never Baruch assault in Willy Wonka. I want it now. And then boop, the golden egg of the goose, right? But how many of us act like that sometimes? We do. John, John wants us to rest assured and know with confidence that our prayers are heard by God, for he is near in us through his spirit who searches the hearts and depths of man. John wants us to never forget, to never forget that our confidence before God in prayer, in communion with him, in communication with him, in our knowledge of him and fellowship with him is never, ever based in this unbridled freedom and autonomy, but through confidence conditions. We know that he hears us when we ask as we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Those are our guardrails. That means we are in the word. We are living out the scriptures, truly reflecting God as his image bearers, restored unto Eden. And if we are doing that, then we are very likely not going to pray stupid prayers. I pray that we do not pray vain prayers. See, if we haphazardly pray as if the process of prayer is like that magic eight ball and do so while living out our lives in direct contradiction to the word of God, which he has spoken to us clearly in, we are actually taking part in an act that God hates. Proverbs 28.9 says this, If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination to the Lord. God hates that. If we care not to listen to his word, why should he care to listen to ours? We are confident that whatever we ask according to his will, he will give us because we are living out his word and living in it. Beloved, dear listener, prayer is not to reorient God to what you think that he should do for you, to your will. Prayer is to reorient you unto the will of God. 
knowing what he delights in and delighting in it yourself since you are his child and want to reflect him and want it to be more and more like him every day, bearing fruit, being holy, fleeing from sin, pursuing that fellowship, walking in the light, all of that and more. That means your prayers will be ones full of scripture hidden in your heart, even if you don't realize that that's what you're praying. And your prayers will ultimately be, Lord, your will be done. If you're truly in the word, if you're truly desiring to live it out and seek it, you will always have that on the tip of your tongue. Christ Jesus himself taught us the model prayer that we pray each week, the Lord's Prayer, more honestly, the disciples' prayer in Matthew 6. And it's all right here that John's telling us about. God focused, confidence in God, God's will being done in, with, and through us. And Christ Jesus also modeled this prayer himself on the night that he was betrayed and in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he was betrayed by Judas. He was praying to the Father, Lord, if there's another way for this to happen, please take this cup from me. But if not, Lord, Lord, Father, will be done. Above all things, not my will, but yours be done. We can come with confidence before the Lord, knowing he hears our prayers. We can even pray things that we think that we need, proclaiming to him we are truly his children, but sometimes we think we need things that we don't. But we pray as children with joy, with assurance. Above all, Father, your will be done. Father, I think I would really like this job, this promotion. If it be your will, will you give it to me? Father, I'm so sick. I know you're sovereign above all things. If it be your will, would you heal me? If not, would you sustain me and have me to trust in you? Father, I'm, a, I'm on a budget. Our family's living paycheck to paycheck, and I'm about to head to the glorious Mecca of Kingfisher. The Lord, if it be your will, would you let there be things there that my family delights in and will sustain us? Even the prayers of daily bread are no longer in vain if we remember we pray in accordance with his word and his How can we not? How can we not have confidence? How can we not boldly approach the throne of grace knowing this? You know this. You know this. And so often we see prayer as a burden. I know I'm supposed to do it, Lord. Thank you for today. Forgive me my sins. Watch over me. Really? That's how we approach the throne of grace. Lord, thank you so much for today. God, I'm getting ready to go on a trip. Would you watch over me? Would you protect me? Would you protect my family? Would you let us have a great time? But above all things, would your will be done? Amen. Confidence to know that he will watch over you. Psalm 91. But even if he does not, he is still good and his will is going to be done. How can we not have confidence? How can we Walk around life being so shaken all the time. Walking around shaking like a, a cat in a room full of rocking chairs, like just anxiety. We have this confident hope. Dearly beloved, go to your Father in prayer. Amen?
John moves on in typical John fashion, giving us an extreme example. It's extreme because it's this generalized statement, and we live in a culture that can't take generalized statements at all. We've got to have all these particular contingency minutiae that become the rule for the generalization. It, it's insane. But before we move on to this extreme generalized example, I want to preface by saying this. This next chunk of scripture has caused quite a bit of controversy, quite a bit of confusion, and no shortness of speculation. But, but if we keep in context and don't rip it from where it is at the end of this letter, remembering the recapitulated purpose of 1 John and verse 13 and our call to confidence in verse 14 and 15, then the confusion, it, it actually kind of dissipates. Ready? Here we go. Strap in. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. But let's prime the pump of this passage, and I want you to hear kind of John saying this to you in, in your mind. This whole letter is for your assurance, your confidence, your faith. It is for you to rest assured in Christ. You hear him in his word, and you live it out, and God hears you. Go before him in prayer, your powerful weapon. Go to him in prayer and realize he is so in control that he even uses you as an instrument in his sovereign plans. Pray to him in confidence about anything, in keeping with his commands and according to his will, and it shall be given absolutely anything. For example, let me give you an absolutely anything extreme case, but don't press it too far. Don't get off in the weeds. And here's the example of your confidence. Verse 16, everybody sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death. He shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. The first half there, literally in the Greek, it's if you see your brother sinning a sin, it, sin is a noun and a verb in the sentence there. So if you see your brother sinning a sin that doesn't lead to death, you should ask and give him life. A few observations about this example. John is calling us to watch out in one another. This isn't if you see someone you see anybody, it says you see your brother, fellow Christian. If you see your fellow Christian sinning a sin, doing the thing, right? Problem. This is a call to pray for them and to help them. It's a call to pray with confidence and to help them. It's, it's not just a, a Lord forgive them or a gossip session about them. But Lord, they're struggling right now. God, would you, would you please help them? And Lord, allow me to be used by you to help them. And that's the second half of the prayer. The second half of the prayer that John gives us that our English Bibles actually kind of lose. The ESV and most major translations say, ask and God will give him life. But in the Greek, it just says, ask and he will give him life. Here's, here's the middle of the road that's scripturally accurate that fulfills both of those because God can be the 
the subject, the context, the subject there, and so can the one that's praying. And they're both right, actually. Think about it like this. Is God the only giver of life? God is the only giver of life. But notice this life, this fellowship, this plead for help and sanctification for the other person, which is self-sacrificial love that we've talked about, is coming from where? From a fellow child of God, from a fellow brother. So ask, and he shall give him life, is both. God using his children as the means to supply life and restoration and sanctification for his other children. This is bearing one another's burdens in love with compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience because of our love of the Lord and fellowship based in him and nothing else. Colossians 3. But what about that odd condition about the fellow Christians sinning a sin not leading to death? I thought the wages of sin was death. Are you Catholic? Is John saying there's moral and venial sins like top tier, bad, bottom, blah, blah, blah? Right? And that's where the focus always gets shifted. That's where the confusion always gets thrown at. When 16 and 17 are ripped from their context, stuff gets pretty wild. Sin that doesn't lead to death, and sin leads to death? What, what are those? Why is John saying that? Have I committed those? Why is John saying not to pray for sin that leads to death? How am I supposed to pray for sinners and share my faith and call them to repent? Is John anti-evangelism? Is John saying God kills people through sin? Is John saying there are sins that will kill us and that some that won't, it's okay to send those that don't? <gasps> those are all actually some of the things that good scholars have come up with. And some of those are good questions to think about. But if we forget our immediate context, and start pulling from all over the rest of Scripture, we end up with some hard-to-grasp theories about what John intends here. The sentiment to let Scripture interpret Scripture is 150% correct. That's how we get our systematic theologies. That's how we get our doctrines. That's called the analogy of faith. The clearer parts of Scripture interpret and give clarity to the murkier ones. But the context here is clear enough to not have to go to the other parts of Scripture to clear it up. We can certainly talk about God's sovereignty and sins and evangelism and all that stuff. But the immediate context of John grounds us in what he means. John has just told us to be what? Assured. And that assurance leads to confidence. And that confidence leads to joyful fellowship with God in prayer. And that joyful fellowship of confident prayer unto God, love for him, love for being in his presence, resonates out in confident prayer for fellow Christians. Breaking news. Just came across my phone. Ready? Even after being born again, dearly beloved, you will still sin. The eradication of sin in the life of the Christian is progressive. It is over time. Regeneration, being born again, and justification, being declared pardoned, they're instantaneous. Becoming more and more like Christ each day is just that. Each day, 
and we will be like he is when we stand before him in glory like we've already seen back in chapter 2 and 3. There are sins that do not lead to death. They do not lead to eternal death. Think about what he's saying. They do not lead to being cast away from the presence of the Lord. John is not giving us license to sin. He is simply saying, these are growing pains, guys. The progressive work of bearing fruit. Yes, you're going to fall short, but your new birth has already happened. Your debt has been paid. Think about an actual birth, which Justin just saw at the beginning of this week, right? Um, It's painful, but that child is a child right then, aren't they? They don't progressively become a child. They're a human being, but they grow up. That humanness progresses. That's what our walk is with the Lord. Each day, repent. Turn from your sins. Don't relish in them. Realize when you fall short, dear Christian, it's not sin that leads to death. In that, you know, you're going to be lost out of the hand of your Savior. You're in one day and out the next from heaven to hell. A true child of God will persevere. You may stumble for a season, but it is never a season where you have completely gone off the rails into the world. The true child of God stumbles for a season and will hate sin and will eventually see it as chastisement, as refiner's fire burning the dross out of them. Beloved, you will still sin. Don't forget that. If you go, I messed up this week. I guess I'm not a Christian. Hold on a minute. You're going to mess up. It is a progressive sanctification. Our confidence before God leads to confident prayer for our brothers that when we see them struggling, we don't gossip about them. We don't slander them. We don't make fun of them. We don't subtweet and subpost about them on social media. We pray for them because we're one body. And part of that, the outcome, God uses us as instruments to help our fellow body parts. This is obscure. Paul has already said the same thing in Philippians 2, 3, 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look each of you not only to his own interests, excuse me, but also to the interests of others. But what about that odd statement that there is sin that leads to death and, and that I should not pray for that? Is, is John saying that we shouldn't pray for those who are lost? What has John been battling this whole letter? What has he been battling this whole letter? False teachers. He's been battling false teachers. And what have these false teachers been doing? Remember? Either... either in secret, covertly, or overtly, out in the open, trying to lead people astray by posing as false brothers or overtly flat-out denying the faith, all based in their claims of, of secret knowledge. Like, you all are sheep. we got the true knowledge. You listen to us. If you don't, it just feeds the martyr mentality. That's what Gnosticism was and is. The sin that, that leads to death that John mentions as an extreme example in the context, still has to do with confident prayer. He is telling us to have discernment 
about who true brothers are, who true Christians are, and that we can pray for and assist them. This willful denial of Jesus, this lack of love, the brash statements, the false teachers have been propagating throughout the whole letter, this hardening and rebellion against the will of God and the word of God, that's the sin that leads to death. John is saying, don't link up with them. Don't link up with them. They, they aren't your brothers. That stuff leads to death. And that's not the stuff that you want to burden yourself with. John's statement, I do not say one should pray for that. So often it's taken to mean too much. It's, it's, it's taken to, to mean too much of what he actually is saying. John is not commanding us to not pray for rebellious sinners. If that were the case, none of us would be in here by the grace of God. The text means this, have discernment and pray with confidence concerning the will of God. You see someone who is in rank of rebellion against God, pray that the Lord would soften their hearts, share the gospel, plead with them. But in the end, if they do not receive life, you have to rest in the sovereignty of God and know you're not going to change his mind. Furthermore, Having this all-star team mentality that everybody that claims to be a Christian is on the same page, which John has continually said, nope, 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 that's being addressed too. A false teacher, a false brother that claims to be just that, a brother, but is in clear rebellion against God and doesn't care and wants you to join them, don't link up with them and try to help them. Sure, pray that they would actually repent, but their sins are ones that are leading to death. They don't need encouragement to Keep up the good fight of the faith. Grow in sanctification. They need to repent. Don't join with that. Difference. We see this extreme example is resting where? In the sovereignty of God. And to make sure we don't overcomplicate things like we always do, John shores up that in verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Not only is sin lawlessness from 1 John 3, but here John is correcting the idea that someone may get. All wrongdoing is sin. All, every single bit of it is sin. The Christian doesn't get a license to do whatever they want, but their momentary stumbling that they hate, those don't lead to death. All sin is sin, but the outcome of sins are different. The sins of God's people are paid for, done, cast as far as the east is from the west. The old man passing away. The sin of, of, of the lost, of the wicked, of the evil, of the rebellious. Those who reject the Lord. It's death. Same sin for both camps is the same sin. Outcomes are different. Thus, we recognize and need to recognize the downplaying of sin and claims to be sinless or to not struggle with sin, which were all over the first part of the letter, are recapped right there. All sin is bad. Don't do it. All right? All sin is bad. No sin, bad. Don't do that. Okay? That's not what God has in store for his children. And if we are his children, and we are, we know this stuff. We can be confident in it, and not only in this, but a few other things that John recaps. Verses 18 through 20. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. 
John gives us three emphatic we know statements. Not you should know, but you know this. Christian, beloved, John rounds us out here with things that are so fundamental that a babe in the faith, if the gospel has been properly presented to them, they know this stuff, and you do know this. Those who have been born of God do not keep on sinning. The one born of God, Jesus, protects the child of God, and the evil one doesn't touch him. That doesn't mean God doesn't allow Satan to tempt us and sift us. He does. Read the book of Job. But we are safe and secure even in our testing and refining in the hands of our Savior. The evil one doesn't take us and snatch us off. Don't keep sinning. Don't look for ways to sin so that grace may abound. It doesn't. It can't, says Paul in Romans. You know that. The world, the Antichrist system that hates holiness and righteousness and love, and would destroy our confidence, is influenced by that evil one, Satan, the chief false teacher, the chief antichrist. You can't serve two masters. You know that, so don't. And the Son of God has come and given us understanding of sin, of God, of ourselves, because he is truth. Not a truth, not like. He is truth. We know the truth of who Christ is, his person and work, then that means we know this stuff and won't get caught up in it. And if we have the right understanding of who Jesus is, we have the truest truth, the grandest truth, eternal life. Not only that, we have joyful fellowship with God who brings us into that fellowship by himself, through himself, and with himself. We are able to declare with confidence and boldness this right here. Jesus is God, that's what John's telling us. There are these recap statements, all in bold. So I ask you, do you echo these statements with that same boldness? You must. Christian, you must. You must be confident in who Christ is, the author and perfecter of our faith, and live your life accordingly in confident prayer, which is based in living in and living out God's confident word, knowing God is sovereignly controlling your life for your good and his glory, that you have eternal life through the life of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who boldly wrought your salvation. Go and boldly proclaim and confidently live out these truths of 1 John. And hear me, we are allowed, we are allowed to have confidence in what we'd ha- we would have called personal convictions. We're allowed to have confidence in these things, right? We're allowed to have that. This restaurant's better than that. Whatever it would be, right? I keep using that restaurant thing. I guess I'm hungry. But our confidence is not based in any of that. Do you hear what John keeps saying? Your confidence is in what Christ has done for you. Your confidence is in his word. Your confidence is in the salvation that has been given unto you by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our fellowship with God and one another is based in the confidence of Christ. Eternal life, that's who we are. That's what we live in. That's what we proclaim and nothing else. Dear ones, let us not shrink back from Christ. Live 
in confidence, linking together in unity, forgiving one another's faults. We're all doing that, not by our own power of volition, but based upon the power of the Holy Spirit, yoking us to the person and work of Christ, giving us confident assurance to know that he has given us life, life abundantly. May that be your truth, foundation for it in. The only thing that you can build upon. Amen. Grace and peace to you. Let's pray. Thank you.